0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter uh, 16. We're going to be looking at verses 17 through uh, the phantom verse 24. We'll talk about that. Last time, when we studied through Romans 16, verses 1 through 16, we saw the Apostle Paul greeting his friends in the church at Rome, and uh, there were a lot of them. We saw the heart of the Apostle Paul, uh, someone whose heart had been transformed by the grace of God from somebody who tried to destroy the church, to someone uh, whose life was filled with love for the brethren. Lots of Christian friends. And uh, in our passage for today, verses 17 through 23 or 24, um, Paul's going to return to giving some practical instructions to the church in verses 17 through 20, and then uh, several of Paul's companions who were with him When he wrote his letter to the Roman believers, several of those companions are going to chime in to send along their greetings to the members of the church at at, at Rome. So that's what we're going to be doing today. In the next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll close out the book of Romans by looking at Paul's doxology in verses 25 through 27. So first of all, we have warnings against false teachers in verses 17 through 20. Paul begins that paragraph by saying in verse 17, I appealed to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine, doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. So here's this appeal from the Apostle Paul. The believers in Rome were supposed to be on the lookout. They're supposed to watch out Um, for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. They they throw out stumbling blocks, not in minor things, not in small things, but uh, they're basically contradicting the doctrine that had been taught to them and that's really summarized in the book of Romans. Remember, Paul had never actually been there. He's going to eventually be there. Um, if church history is correct, that's where he's going to end up dying. But he's going to end up being in Rome, but not the way he thought. Um, but nevertheless, he he writes to them this, this letter, um, the most... Doctrinal letter, perhaps, in the New Testament, a great summary of what the Christian faith is all about. And uh, undoubtedly, the book of Romans is a summary of the doctrine they, that they had been taught. And uh, he's telling them to avoid them. That That's what their strategy was supposed to be. Not debate them. Not even necessarily to try to convince them of the error of their ways, but uh, very simply to avoid them. And uh, this is a lesson for for us in the church that it's it's not for us to be creative when it comes to the doctrine of the church. It, it, it is up to us to be creative in terms of ways to find an audience for the Word of God, to be creative in finding ways to connect with real people in our day and age so that we can share the truth of the Word of God with them and make disciples of all the nations. But in terms of the content of what we're supposed to believe, Creativity is out of bounds. No, we've been told what we're supposed to proclaim, what we're supposed to share. We're supposed to preach what has already been written in the Word. We're supposed to proclaim, teach, and defend the faith which has been once for all delivered to the saints. And there's a popular notion that this reminds me. There's a popular notion today that doctrine divides. But there's so many places in the New Testament like like this one where the believers are supposed to remember the doctrine that they have been taught, to, to defend it, to make a difference between that doctrine and false doctrine. So, there's a popular notion today that doctrine divides, but the Bible says that it's false doctrine that divides. It's false doctrine that creates divisions and creates obstacles. True doctrine, that doctrine that we find in the Word of God, um, that doctrine that God gave His Word for to begin with, remember. Uh, All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is profitable for doctrine. That true doctrine that we find in the Word of God doesn't divide, it unites. If you're a believer in the God of the Bible, then when you hear true doctrine, it's going to unite you together with other believers who have the Uh, the same heart for the same truth. It'll divide you from false teachers, but it's not going to divide you from true brothers and sisters in the Lord, and it's not going to divide you from God either. So a good lesson for us here. False doctrine divides, but the truth unites. And uh, at the end of verse 17 there, I've already touched on this. How were the members of the church in Rome supposed to treat teachers who contradicted apostolic doctrine? They're supposed to avoid them. And in some translations, it says, disassociate yourselves from them. Don't listen to them. Don't hang out with them. Don't give them a platform for their their errors, their false doctrine." When Paul wrote to Titus in uh, that pastoral epistle, Titus chapter 3 and verse 10, he said this As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Disassociate yourself from that divisive person. And by the way, this is a lost discipline in the life of the church uh, to, to actually carry out this kind of church discipline. We, we've never actually done this uh, in our church, but I, I do remember when we were meeting uh, on that um, that office space on, on Gemstone and uh, there, was, there was a lady um, who... Presented herself as a as a friend, and then I found out, just in the normal course of things, a bunch of people from the church, and and these were people who weren't looking for trouble. They weren't on on the prowl, trying to find false doc, doctrine. They just kind of mentioned to me, "Hey, um, just wanted you to know that that this particular sister." Has been complaining about you, complaining about the church, and wanting to know how come we don't do this and that and and the other thing. And I, I eventually uh, there were enough people that mentioned that to me. Uh, even though I don't like confrontation, it, it's true. I felt like I had to say something, and uh, and and I did. And uh, I told her, you know, if you have a problem with the church's doctrine, why don't you come? talk to me about it instead of talking to this person and that person and and the other person. And um, nothing else had to be done. She was gone after that. I I wish that that wasn't the case, but that's what ends up happening a lot. But the Bible tells us that there's actually a a procedure for, for dealing with that. We don't have to sit idly by and allow the church to be destroyed Uh, If someone doesn't listen to that kind of gentle approach, then they can be called out publicly, actually, and told to uh, stay away, and the church could be told to, to avoid such a person. So passages like that exist in the Word of God. And here's one of them, Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. And then... Paul goes on, what motivates such divisive people? Sorry, let's see, I am there, okay. What motivates such divisive people? Verse 18, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naïve. Again, Paul talks about this in another place in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19 where he talks about uh, false teachers. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So in some folks, this is really obvious, and some folks, it's, it's not quite as obvious. The the principle here about what motivates these divisive people uh, from William Hendrickson, basically they're self-servers of any description, people who are slaves of their own ego. At the end of the day, they're they're not primarily devoted to the glory of God. They're, They're not committed to the good of God's people. They're ultimately committed to themselves, their own desires, and it seems that they like to hear themselves talk, and they like to deceive and persuade other people to their way. And it turns out, sadly, that... These false teachers 2,000 years ago or so were uh, attracted to the church in Rome. They apparently saw the church in Rome as fertile ground for their false teaching. That's what Paul says in verse 19. For your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. where where the Spirit of Christ is at work, saving souls, transforming lives, causing believers to mature, to grow in the faith, you can be sure that the devil isn't far away. Trying to turn the work of God on its head, sowing seeds of discord and error and corruption and Deceiving people, that's the way it is in a fallen world. This is not heaven. And uh, Paul's words at the end of verse 19, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, reminds us of the words of Christ in Matthew 10 and verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That's Christ's call or charge to us. And Paul was confident about who would ultimately win. Notice verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. The first part of verse 20 there Um, If you're familiar with the Old Testament, that should remind you of um, God's words to the serpent in the Garden of Eden and the promise to Adam and Eve and their offspring. The, the, um, The first promise of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. God said there to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That uh, language here is adopted by the Apostle Paul, but there's an interesting nuance here in Romans, and that is Paul includes us in this, in this process of uh, crushing Satan. God, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. We talked about that during the prayer meeting a little bit. It's an interesting study. So think of Genesis 3 and verse 15. It's it's an offspring passage. There's the woman's offspring, and there's the offspring of the serpent, And we know from the New Testament that that ultimately this passage is pointing forward to Christ. Christ is the woman's offspring. But then as the uh, gospel promises in the Old Testament are unfolded, like in Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 10, we learn that the Messiah who would come would have offspring, We are called the offspring of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 10. And that's not a physical offspring. It's because the offspring of Christ would be born from above, born of the Spirit, and we we would be adopted into the family of God. We would be children of God and Christ's offspring. And so, as Christ's offspring... We have a role to play in crushing the head of the serpent. Ultimately, after Christ's second coming, Jesus is going to throw the devil into the lake of fire. But until that final triumph, according to Paul here in Romans chapter 16... Every time we hold forth the truth of God's word and avoid false teaching, we crush the serpent's head under our feet a little bit harder. We're we're hastening the ultimate destruction of the devil. And that's really encouraging because we're not told in the Bible, we're not told here for sure, that it's our responsibility to go face-to-face, head-to-head, toe-to-toe with the devil. Instead, all we do is discern truth from error, defend the gospel, believe the gospel, hold it forth, live it out, avoid false teaching, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's really encouraging. To me, it encouraged the great church reformer Martin Luther. He mentions this in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. Martin Luther wrote in that hymn, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Praise God. Amen. So that's Paul's warnings against false teachers. Then in verses 21 through 23, we have greetings from Paul's companions. So notice verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So there's Timothy. He's uh, around Paul, as these other folks are, as Paul writes this letter and Timothy wants to make sure that uh, his greeting to the Christians in Rome is included in this letter. And uh, Timothy is a very important figure in the New Testament. He's mentioned 26 times, 26 in the New Testament scriptures. He was Paul's son in the faith and closest companion. And... uh, it would do us good to um, have our memories refreshed about when Paul first met Timothy in Acts chapter sixteen. Acts chapter sixteen. Notice verses one through three in Acts chapter sixteen. The setting here is Paul's second missionary journey. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. And by the way, so here's a map. Um, this is where Paul was sent out from in Antioch. There's Derby. There's Lystra. Uh, this is modern-day Turkey, first century. It was the region known as Galatia. And uh, over here is where Paul was when he was writing the book of Romans. And it turns out that Timothy ends up going all over the place with the, with the Apostle Paul. So Paul comes to Derby and to Lystra during a second missionary journey. A disciple was there named Timothy. So Timothy was already saved. He was a disciple. He was the son of a mixed marriage, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek and apparently out of the picture. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So here he is, a young believer from a mixed marriage. He had a good reputation among the brethren, And he quickly won the heart and the trust of the Apostle Paul. And uh, Paul didn't want Timothy to be a stumbling block to the Jews in any of the cities where he would go. And that's why he had Timothy circumcised. And really the noteworthy thing is Timothy allowed himself to be circumcised for that purpose. And then so the story continues on. Paul calls Timothy his fellow worker here in uh, Romans chapter 16 and verse 21. And in his other writings, Paul calls Timothy brother, bondservant, beloved and faithful child in the Lord, son, and co-equal in the Lord's work. And of course, two of the Books in the New Testament uh, bear his name by church tradition, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Those were uh, two of Paul's pastoral epistles written to Timothy when he was pastoring the church in Ephesus. And in the first letter, 1 Timothy, he addressed Timothy as my true son in the faith, 1 Timothy 1-2. And in the second letter, Letter as my dear son. And if you look with me in Second Timothy, real quick, we're told about. Uh, Timothy, let's see. I'm sorry, First Timothy. Verse 2, he calls Timothy my true child in the faith. Um, in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, he says about about himself. And in verse 18, I discharge, I entrust to you Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Wasn't going to be easy what Paul was charging Timothy uh, t- to do. And he goes on to uh commend Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, they were the ones who had taught Timothy the faith because his father, his Gentile father, was apparently out of the picture. And in 2 Timothy, Paul goes on to remind Timothy about where he had learned the contents of the Christian faith and that from childhood he had known the Holy Scriptures, which were able to make one wise for uh, for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's Timothy from a childhood, from a child, being taught the word of God from his godly mother and his grandmother. So Paul was saved much later in life, it turns out that uh, t- uh, that Timothy was saved from a child, and that through the in- instrumentality of Lois and Eunice. So that's Timothy, who sends along his greetings in uh, Second uh, fir- uh, Romans, sorry, <laughs> chapter sixteen and verse twenty-one a. And then there's there are others. So the second half of verse twenty-one, Timothy greets them. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, Paul says. And so those individuals apparently were fellow Jews, as Paul was. We're going to come back to verse uh, 22 about Tertius. Skipping down to verse 23, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. And this Gaius is probably the same individual mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14 as one of the few believers whom Paul had personally baptized in Corinth. And so here uh, he is called the host of the whole church. And so probably there were times when the whole church met in this man's home or maybe that was the main meeting place of the church in Corinth but whatever the case may be he was a hospitable man and this is an internal clue that Paul was in Corinth when he had written the book the uh, book of Romans and then it turns out that the gospel had penetrated the city government In Corinth. And so, the second half of verse 23, there's Erastus, the city treasurer, who was converted and sends along his greetings. And also, our brother Cordus, he sent along his greetings as well. So, greetings from Paul's companions. So, now let's use this as an excuse to have a quick lesson in biblical inspiration. Uh, So, first of all, going back to verse 22, there's this guy, Tertius, and the text says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And you say, wait a minute, I thought the Apostle Paul was the author of the book of Romans. And Paul was the author of the book of Romans. But... It was a pretty common practice in the ancient world to employ uh, a person in the role of an uh, amanuensis, amanuensis. And that was a literary or artistic assistant, in particular one who takes dictation or copies manuscripts. And that's what Tertius was. Paul technically was the author because it contains his thoughts. The letter to the church in Rome contains his thoughts. But Tertius was the scribe. But the end result is God's word. And uh, I want to talk about that a little bit, because it's good to be reminded about uh, how God gave his word. Because a lot of people, when they hear terminology like the Bible is the word of God, or the Bible is inspired, or or God breathed, theonoustos, which is the word that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3:16. Sometimes we can have the idea that um, the human authors of the scriptures were like robots, and they went into this trance. And the Holy Spirit took control of them and they're writing the word of God and they have no idea what they're writing. They have no control in the matter. It's it's God using them as a a machine, as a teletype or something. And that's not the way the Bible was, was given to us. So look with me in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And notice verses 20 and 21. Second Peter chapter one, verses 20 and 21. Peter here writes, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, um, prophecy is either, uh, forth telling or foretelling? For- forth telling simply means that the prophet is the spokesperson for God, the mouthpiece of God. Forth telling means the prophet is telling the future because God's revealing that. But most of scripture is not foretelling, it's forth telling. It's simply telling forth the word of God. And so when Peter says the prophecy of Scripture, that's what he's referring to. And he's clarifying for us that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation or from human origin. Ultimately, the origin of Scripture and therefore um, the basis of interpretation comes from God himself. That's what he says in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And John MacArthur has a really nice comment here on that whole process. John MacArthur wrote, As those godly men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, he superintended their words and used them to produce the Scriptures. As a sailing ship is carried along by the wind to reach its final destination, so the human authors of Scripture were moved by the Spirit of God to communicate exactly what he desired. In that process the Spirit filled their minds, souls, and hearts with divine truth, mingling it sovereignly and supernaturally with their unique styles, vocabularies, and experiences and guiding them to produce a perfect inerrant result. That's why Isaiah reads like Isaiah. David reads like David. Paul reads like Paul, and Peter reads like Peter. Their their personalities as the human instruments were intact. But God, to use the words of um, John MacArthur and others, God superintended the whole process so that the result is the word of God given through the the instrumentality of, of men. And so, that includes not only their personalities and backgrounds and gifts, but it also includes someone like a tertius and amanuensis, a scribe. And so, the result is the Word of God, no matter who the instrument was. And remember that the reason why we recognize the, the writings of the Apostle Paul as Scripture, is because he filled the unique office of apostle. The Apostle Paul was an apostle like, like Peter was, and so automatically, whatever writings we have from the apostles themselves, we receive as Scripture because Jesus promised the apostles that he was going to remind them of whatever it was that Jesus taught them. And then more broadly than that, whoever was in the apostolic circle and whoever taught apostolic doctrine consistent with the apostles from the first century, we would receive that as the word of God. And then that leads to the question then, well, what exactly is God-breathed? What is inspired from these authors, the, the apostolic Authors. And uh, that's where the Phantom Verse 24 comes in. R- raise your hand if you have a, an English translation that includes verse 24. Seriously. Okay? Just a few. So, King James or New, New King James? No? What is it? Uh, NASB. The NASB, it actually includes verse 24? In, okay, good. Right. If you have a... Who who has a King James? You you do, Michael. So does the King James include verse 24? It does, right, okay. Um, And then raise your hand if you have a Bible that goes from verse 23 through verse 25. Yeah? Did you ever look at that and go, wow, what happened? A mistake. It got past the editor's. Well, remember that the chapter and verse divisions are not a part of the inspired text. That was written uh, well into the second millennium of the Christian age. Uh, chapter and verse divisions were not God-breathed. The the words, the content were God-breathed. But he, here's, here's the story. In my... Um, translation, the English Standard Version. It doesn't contain the words at all. There's a footnote and it simply says, some manuscripts, insert verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And so in your New King James, that's probably what it says, but it's in, it's in parentheses. Um, and so let, let's talk about that. First of all, the contents of verse 24, whether it's actually in the original text or not, it's, it's thoroughly biblical. In fact, um, that thought, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, it, it's already in verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, And there's at least eight expressions like this in Paul's letters. So there's nothing in terms of content that is at at stake. But what's the story here? How come some manuscripts have that verse and some don't? And so here's a a quick summary of how we got our Bibles. The, The original authors were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as we saw in 2 Peter chapter 1. So Peter, Paul, along with Tertius, and all of the other human authors, they were the ones who were inspired by God in the process of their writing the Scriptures. We have none of those original writings there, there's no such thing as a um, as the letter from the apostle Paul to the church at Rome. It, it it doesn't exist today. It's just the nature of the case that ancient documents like that, written on uh, papyrus or on animal skins of various types, they just didn't last. And of course, they didn't have the cloud or anything that we're familiar with today. And so what they did in order to propagate the scriptures was to copy and copy and copy and copy and copy. And so the uh, early Christians copied and copied and copied and copied the scriptures and they went all over the Roman world and then that continued to be the case for centuries and centuries and centuries. So that now, where we sit, even though we don't have the original document written by the Apostle Paul, turns out we have between 20 and 25,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament documents, 5,700 of which are actually written in Greek. And then those manuscripts are from all kinds of different periods of church history, including the first couple of centuries, and they've been found in different regions of the world where Christianity spread. And not only that, but we have over a million New Testament citations in sermons, tracts, and commentaries written by the church fathers so that the entire New Testament can be reproduced from those citations alone. Now, if, if that was all there was, great, no problem. But obviously, there's some challenge because we have a missing verse 24. Well, it turns out that over the centuries, when the scriptures were being copied and sent to all different places, and now we look back on those 25,000 or so manuscripts, there are differences among those manuscripts. And critics of the Bible will say, there are so many errors and differences in the New Testament. And that's false. That's not true. So while there are a lot of what we call textual variants like like this one, it it turns out that most of the differences between these existing manuscripts that we have are really minor and they're really easy to see. And so scholars, they, they compare a manuscript from the first century to a manuscript containing the same verse from the 1200s, And they could see that a particular spelling has changed or there's something called a movable new or whatever. And it's really easy to resolve that. Turns out that all of these variations in the existing manuscripts, most of them, I should say, the vast majority of them, are easily resolved down to um, about one half of one percent. So 99.5% of all of these manuscripts, really no questions. They're, they're easy to figure out. And so we have a, a straight line from these manuscripts down through the ages to the original, even though we don't have, actually have the original. It's because we have all of these copies down through the ages. But then somebody might think, oh, well, there you go. How can you say that the Bible is the word of God? How can the words of Christ be true when when Christ said that uh, the law will by no means pass away until uh, every jot and tittle of the law is fulfilled? How, How can that be true? How can you trust that? if in any given text of Scripture, you only have 99.5% certainty that that is accurate. Do you you feel the pain? Well, here's the solution to that. It's not that there's one half of 1% uncertainty in the whole New Testament or in every verse in the new in the new testament we 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 know where those textual variants are. and because Christians are all about truth, we're not trying to hide anything. We publish in our Bible translations these footnotes that you're all familiar with, and even the missing verse twenty four we we say things like, Well, there are some manuscripts that don't contain this particular verse or this particular word or ending or or whatever. And so the point is, we, we know where that uncertainty lies. And so think about all of that now as we go back to verse 24. Whether verse 24 is part of the original text or not, we know that the truth that it contains is in the Book of Romans, and it's contained in other of Paul's writings. And so, there's no content of the Christian truth that's hanging in the balance. That is true about all textual variants in the New Testament. There is no article of the Christian faith that is hanging in the balance of the outcome of these uh, of uh, textual criticism. That That's number one. The other thing is that if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll see that in the body of manuscripts that we have, um, there's a few of them that are really old, closest to the original. They don't contain verse 24. Verse 24 ends up showing up in the, manus- the body of manuscripts many centuries later on. And that's why the scholars who were behind the New American Standard, the NIV, uh, the English Standard Version, they say that the best manuscripts don't contain that verse. It probably cropped up later on uh, as the copyists um, added it, maybe from a a marginal note or or whatever. But whether it's part of the original or not, it doesn't change the trustworthiness of the Word of God. It turns out that there is nothing missing. Again, we know which verses have textual variants. Either those variants are part of the original or they're not. But there's nothing actually missing. And when it comes to 99.5% of the text, there's not even a question about textual variants. And so the Bible has been incredibly supernaturally, extraordinarily preserved down through the ages in in, in a way that no other ancient document uh, can compare to. And it's been preserved down through the ages even though people have tried to destroy it so that we can believe the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. We actually see them fulfilled The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And so rather than verse 24 causing our faith to stumble, the more that we dig into it, we realize, wow, what I have in my lap is the word of God, and I can trust it, and God has incredibly preserved it down through the ages. So that's verses 17 through 23 or 24. Really, the main takeaway from all of this is what Paul says there at the end of verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the main point. That is the explanation for the transformation of the Apostle Paul. That's the explanation of all the people mentioned in Romans chapter 16 from diverse backgrounds and ethnicities united together in a common cause and sincerely loving one another. This is the reason why God has miraculously preserved the scriptures down through the ages because the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the heart of the message of the 66 books of the Bible. And it's it's been important for God to get that word to the nations of all ages and to get that message to you. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done for sinners like us, not what you do, to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, to make yourself out to be a good person. Jesus has done it all. He's taken away our sins. He's given us the very righteousness of God. He promises to be with us always, even to the end of the age, and he simply asks us to trust him, to love him, to follow him as our Lord and Savior. Do that today. Come to Jesus today and you will be saved. Let's pray.